Uh, welcome to the House of God here at Christian Outreach Centre here in Charters Towers, and you are all very welcome. I'd just like to kick off with a, a scripture there. We've just sang Amazing Grace, and it's a, a great scripture that comes around that theme is in uh, uh, the book of Ephesians, and chapter 2, and uh, verse 4. And it says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So the title of my message tonight, I'm just going to be touching on this area of grace, but the title of the message is Grace, the Empowerment to Christian Victory. Who likes the sound of being empowered? Who likes the sound of victory, amen? I think we all do. And Jesus Christ, he's no longer on the cross, but he's seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. And so he's seated at the right hand of the Father and we too will be seated with him. Amen. So it's a place of empowerment. And that's where Jesus is. He's no longer riding on a donkey. He's no longer in a manger. He's no longer in the tomb, that's for sure. And uh, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And... uh, So I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit so much tonight or the power of God, even though grace entails that. I'm not talking about the anointing, about faith, prayer or moving in the gifts of God. All those subjects I have touched on in the last four or five weeks. But tonight I am talking to you about grace. And uh, yes, and, and I call it, it's another arrow to put into your quiver of Christian arsenal resourcing the believer to be victorious and empowered in Christian victory. I'm all for equipping people that they are prepared for life to win victoriously. That just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you have to take second best, amen? You're just not the nice person down the street or next door, but you're a person with with oomph, amen? Christian victory is about working in the power of God, and it is there and it is available to you and I as we tap into it. Now, the resources of heaven are unlimited, and you can go to it with a teaspoon if you like, but I like to go to the resources of heaven with a D9, amen? I'm greedy for the things of God, amen? And you should be too. Hunger, because the power of God and the resources of heaven have been made available to the believer. The promises of God, of which there are more than 33,000 promises, in fact, more promises in the Bible than there are verses in the Bible, but they are made available to that who believes. Are there any believers in the house tonight? Amen? Can I have an hallelujah? I'm a believer. Amen? I'm a believer. And it's a way, that, it's a way of thinking and, uh, that we don't take second best, but we make a, God has made available to you, to us, and has not left us without resources. Amen? So when there's sickness in your home, when there's poverty in your home, when there's not enough money in the bank account, you just open up them bills and you say, Lord, you've got a problem. Amen? You don't even consider it yours because I am not my own. I am bought with a price. Isn't that a good way to think about it? Amen? If the Lord's got a problem in this church, it's not my problem. It's God's problem. It's his church. It's a good way to think. And so um, 
But I'm interested in, in uh, that you are successful and becoming victorious in every avenue of your life. And uh, in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, his introduction is what you may call his almost standard introduction. Paul wrote about 13 letters. He wrote 13 letters and also possibly the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, but as you know, he wrote, so that's about one third of the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle, this is how it reads, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, so he wasn't self-appointed, to the saints who were in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Listen to this, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking about grace tonight, just touching on that vast subject only. And in Romans 1, 7 to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing. He starts all his letters in the same way. In 1 Corinthians, he writes to the Corinthian church. And he may as well put some carbon letter underneath the page because the identical words are written to both, both, uh, in both letters. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it about grace and Paul? Amen. What is it about grace? In 2 Corinthians, identical words. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Galatian church, which was the upper, which was the upper Asia Minor area of modern day Turkey. And so he wrote to a group of churches in the region called Galatia. And so to the churches of Galatia, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians, to the Philippian church, which was the first church he established on the European continent, he says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever picked up on that before? In the letter to the Colossians, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing, isn't it? Have you ever thought about that? But in every, all 13 letters, the, uh, it all revolves around about the second and third verse of all the letters around this theme of grace. And in addition to that, the, also that's the opening salutation, but in the closing salutation of all those letters... He responds like this, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. So Paul, known as the, I call it the apostle of grace and grit, his theme is grace. This common introduction and concluding salutation, extending grace, is in all of those 13 letters that Paul wrote. Strangely, though, it's not included in the book of Hebrews where some people think he perhaps did not write, write this letter and that would be some evidence to support that. But Paul is commonly referred to as the apostle of grace and grit by that great teacher, Chuck Swindoll. And uh, Ephesians 2.7, that it says that in the ages to come, he, that's being Jesus, might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The cross is the absolute measure of the grace of God to each and every one of us. And that needs to be appropriated individually to our lives. We know that uh, Jesus died for all the sin of humanity. 
but individually we need to appropriate it when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. And so the footnote, but, but what is grace? And there's been many explanations of it, but what does the Bible say about it? And, uh, but so the footnote in your, footnote in your Bible uh, regarding these verses describe grace as a, like an undeserved favour of kindness. And that'd have to be true, wouldn't it? Grace is an undeserved favour of kindness extended to each and every one of us. Surely it must soften our hearts towards God. It says, for, for, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still blaspheming him, Christ died for us. While we didn't want to have anything to do with him. While I was serving other gods and other false religions, Christ died for you and I. Amen? That's the extent of his grace. This kindness and favour without regard or merit to the one who receives it. So grace there is therefore the grace of God which is immeasurable is not something that you can earn. But grace is something that you can receive. Amen? And so in regard to the love of God and the, even the grace of God, it's something that you just put out. It's a free gift which you don't earn. You cannot earn the grace of God. There's nothing in the world that you could ever do to earn it because we do not measure up to the standards of heaven, holiness and his righteousness. But we just put out our hands and by the grace of God, we just say thank you. It's amazing, isn't it? Because we like to do. It's easy for us to go out and run around the block and try to earn something. And we say, oh, well, now you owe it to me. But not so. God does not owe anybody. Grace is therefore not something that can be earned, but only something that can be received. Even in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord God describing the attributes of God is merciful and gracious. He's a, and long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. But his merciful and gracious is the nature of God. That is his nature. When they say, and God is love, that is his nature. That, that is his substance. And being graceful and gracious to us is the substance. And it is of God. Then we see that grace is always... When we talk about grace throughout the whole of Scripture, and it's a vast subject, and you never ever pick out one verse on grace and say, well, that's the subject, that's grace, and define grace. No, you have to read the book of grace. It is a book of grace, from Genesis to Maps. And then you can get the whole heart of God and the whole counsel of God. And the most dangerous thing that you can do as a Bible believer is to grab just one couple of handful of Scriptures and say, that's the topic. No, it's not. You need to read the whole context of God in it. There we see that grace is always associated with mercy. It's associated with love. It's associated with compassion and patience. And even the covenant, the old and the new covenants, which God made with man, revolve around this word called chesed. It's a Hebrew word which means mercy. So even God's covenant with, with us that we would have fellowship with him through the covenants or agreements or contracts with God is only made possible by the chesed or mercy of God. And so the theme of grace is especially prominent by Paul, overpowering the works of the law. And we know that the works of the law are like the Ten Commandments. 
And the Pharisees of the day extended those Ten Commandments to 603 commandments. I was flat out even knowing the Ten. But how could you ever possibly know the 603 or 613 commandments which they'd expanded them to? But this simple explanation that you can only receive the grace of God is reinforced in the lyrics of that amazing song, Amazing Grace, that saved a wretch like me. I was 29 years old before I came to Christ, and I put up my hand when I realized I was a wretch before God. I understood for the first time in my life the real, real holiness of God, and then I looked on myself and what I had become without God, and I knew that amazing grace meant something different to me now, having understood and received the grace of God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I was but now I see. And so for 29 years of my life, I basically live without God. Live without God. I suppose about 14 years of age, I turned away from God big time. Just cut loose. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. A reverential fear of God is not a terrible or religious thing. A reverential fear of God is a healthy thing for a believer to have. To understand and have a reverential fear of God is a good thing. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. When did you become a believer? And when the grace of God, when it dawned on you, how far you were separated, how dark things have become. But then when the light of God burst through into your heart, how you were transformed and what a glorious moment that was. And you would have to say with John Newton, as we know that John Newton wrote that song, many of you would know the, the history behind that song of amazing grace. You would have to say that he who has forgiven much loves much. That's where I put myself. I knew I was forgiven much and therefore I loved much. And the song written by the ex-slave trader John Newton, a life of debauchery and depravity committed to the worst of evils, the slave trade. But he realized that he was the worst of sinners, yet received the undeserved favor of God. And I think some of the greatest sinners make some of the greatest saints when they understand what they've been saved from and they realize what they are saved to. He repented of his heinous sins not just of the slave trade, but everything that the slave trade afforded him and every vile activity that the industry offered him. I believe his memoirs are heart-wrenching and graphic. Amen. I've never read them, but they apparently are very, very graphic. And you don't have to leave anything to the imagination, but John Newton, in the midst of a wild storm, he thought the ship was going down. Massive, massive storm. It's, and, it's, and it's like most of us are like the rest of us. It often takes a massive storm for us to turn to the divine God of heaven. Amen. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, he began reading a Thomas Akempis' book, The Imitation of Christ. I don't know if any of you have read that book. It was written in about 1611. About uh, Sorry, uh, uh, it was written about... 600 years ago, Thomas Akempis wrote that book, 
reprintings. I think there's been about 2,000 reprintings. It's a very small book. It's a beautiful book. It's not a theological book, but it's about a man and a relationship with God, which is what Jesus died on the cross for. He didn't, Jesus didn't die on a cross for his theology. He died on a cross that we would have a relationship with a heavenly father. Amen. And that's what this book is all about. It's not about accomplishing things, but the greatest heroes are those who have surrendered the most to God. Amen. The greatest of heroes, not what we accomplish in life, but how much we've surrendered to Christ. Amen. Oh, it's a beautiful book. And it's uh, Thomas Akempis. And so he wrote that book. And so John Newton went down into the, into the belly of that ship thinking that he was going to go down and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And he was raised up in the scriptures from the age of six years old before he was stole away <coughs> and lived a very, <coughs> very, very tough life. But God is faithful, amen. And God never left him and he was with him through all those years and brought him through. He eventually became a pastor at the only church and uh, he went on to become a minister of a large parish in England, and he wrote a whole hymnal, hymnal called the Olney Hymns. And Amazing Grace is just one of hundreds of hymns that he wrote. John Newton could preach so passionately about the grace and the love of God because he had experienced its transforming power. I ask you tonight, have you experienced the transforming power of the grace of Jesus Christ. If you've never experienced it, for those people listening online, you may be pounding the beach, you may be at the gym or taking a walk or something like that, perhaps you're doing the ironing. But have you experienced the transforming power of receiving the grace of God for yourself? And just say, Jesus, I accept everything that you did in my life. Let me be born again of the spirit of the living God. So your life too can be totally transformed when you commit your life to Christ today. You can be forgiven today. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. It's not something that you should put off. We, don't, we are never guaranteed our next breath. Oh, no, we're not. Not guaranteed our next breath. You could be in a 100% physical, amazing condition and be within seconds of your last breath. Amen? And, that's, and that can be true. But the meaning of this wonderful heavenly commodity called grace is encompassing so much more than even the undeserved favor for which we all understand, as it says in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. But grace is also a power or a force of its own. And grace, therefore, is the power of God extended to you to accomplish what God has given you to do. And therefore, you find in God, when God is building his church, that he often asks somebody very, very peculiar, very, very underqualified, very, very under this and under that to do extraordinary tasks. And they need the grace of God upon their life to accomplish what God has called them to do. God very rarely gets the greatest CEOs from the greatest companies of the earth to do his bidding. He grabs a someone like a carpenter like myself and says, you'll do. I'll transform you. I feel, I'll fill you with my spirit. I'll fill you with the, all the learning that I need to do. I'll fill you with the word of God, with an unction of the Holy Ghost. What more do you need? Amen. You, I'll give you a theological degree if you need one, but most likely it's not. If you're ordained by God, what more can man do? That's what I always say. If you are ordained by God for, to do what he's 
to do the Lord's bidding, whatever that may be, and you feel that you're underqualified, you feel that you're uh, uh, not up to the task, well, then you've got to rely on God, and therefore God gets all the glory. And that's how we find that God generally builds his church. Amen? And so if God has asked you to do something and you feel that you're not big enough for the task, uh, it's most likely that you're the one that God wants. For God does not look at the outward appearance, but he does look at the heart. Amen. And that's why young David was selected above his seven or six or seven other brothers. Amen. They all had the, they were very tall and they were big chesty guys and all this sort of stuff. But God didn't, he, he chose the small ruddy one who was still, wasn't even brought in to be considered. And that was the one that God chose. And so in less than perfect situations, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and Jesus, it's written in red. So it's, uh, Jesus is speaking to Paul here later on after Jesus even ascended into heaven. And Jesus said to Paul, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Isn't that amazing? My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And when the grace of God is upon you, in your weakness, then you are strong. And it's a bit like when you laminate two pieces of timber together properly, the bond is actually stronger than the two materials either side. And that really is grace. When the grace of God comes upon you, it is the strongest part, not the weakest. When the strength and bond of God comes upon your weakness, then you are strong. Amen? You are strong in the Lord. Ephesians 6.10 says, be strong in the Lord. Not in his physical strength, not, not your own physical. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all to stand. Amen? Be strong in the Lord. That's what grace is. Being strong in the Lord. And things that you think you cannot do are now able, you are able to do because the grace of God is an empowering presence, a divine unction of God that comes upon a believer when he taps into the resources of heaven. Grace is a favorable disposition of God toward you on account of Christ. What do you mean on account of Christ? When you receive Christ, that's being on account of Christ. When you receive Christ, Power of heaven then is available to you. God's power, God's strength, God's provision, God's plans accomplished in your life. God's grace is basically all you need. If you've got nothing else but God, you've got more than enough. Nothing else but God. You say, Lord, I don't have any resources. He says, I'm on your side. God's in your corner. One man with God is a majority. In John 1.16, and his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. John 1.17 for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? So in the Old Testament, the law was given through Moses. And there were quite a few contracts in that Old Testament. But the law was given through Moses. When the law was given that day, 3,000 died. But on the day of Pentecost, when we entered into the period of the dispensation of grace, 3,000 were saved. Isn't that amazing? And on the day that the law was given at Mount Sinai... 3,000 died. They were judged by the law immediately. That's what it is. But the great, we live in a dispensation, the church age, the end of days, 
the age, this 2,000 year period of dispensation called the church age or the days of grace. This is a dispensation of the grace of God. Amen? This is the time period in which we live. And so, and it says, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, that's Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 2. Paul writes about that at that time. Grace here comes from God's fullness and is more than his personal favour. God meets us at our point of need, including all his power and provision in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? He is the conduit by which the power of God comes. Grace is also the power of God that comes upon you on a daily basis for the day that you need it. And my grace is given to you on a daily basis. Or the power of God is given to you on a daily basis. You look at the week ahead and you think, I don't think I have the energy for that. I don't have the power for that. I don't have the grace for that. And the reason that you don't is because when it's Monday, you don't get the power to do Tuesday till Tuesday comes. The grace of God comes upon you on Tuesday and you look at Wednesday and you think, but Wednesday comes and the grace of God comes new and fresh every morning. So God's provision, his grace is for you new and every day. So there is grace for you tonight. And whatever you're facing in life, there is a power available to you this very night. Amen? You don't have to seek it. It's there for you. All you do, like any gift, is you put out your hand and you say, I receive it by faith in Jesus' name. Can you say that? I receive it by faith in Jesus' name. Put an unction in it. Put faith to your words. You put your hand out. You say, I'm facing some health issues. I'm facing financial issues. I've got kids. Who doesn't have issues? Amen. But I've got the grace of God. I receive it by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. And that is the way we pray. It's not a, an arrogant prayer. No, it is a faithful prayer, knowing your entitlements and authority as a believer. Amen. You, you are entitled as a believer. And the authority of the believer comes not when you're baptized in the Holy Ghost and filled with tongues and all these other amazing things which are available to No, the moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord, amen, that is the moment that the authority of heaven is imparted to you. If you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, that authority is yours today. Not tomorrow, not something that you have to work out. No, you just step out now in faith. And so why was Paul this great apostle of grace and grit? And why was the main themes? When you have a look at the concordance, all the, more than half of the references of the word grace in the whole Bible are all written by Paul. <coughs> you see, Paul was the ex-persecutor of Christians. He would have killed Christians just for the heck of it. He was there and a witness to the first martyr, Stephen. He witnessed, fully supported the death of the first martyr, he was the man who was in his mad, he had a maddening zeal for religion. Maddening zeal for religion. And you can meet people like that. They will do anything for their religion. But Jesus didn't die on a cross for a religion. He died on a cross for a relationship. And, and God was showing Paul that there was a massive difference. Paul went from house to house, even to other cities, to round up believers and to bring them and to be convicted in the courts and even bring them back to Jerusalem to be tried and even executed. He put up his hand and he says, I'll do that. I'll do that. I want to serve God. That's what I want to do. In his mind, he was serving God. But amazing, on the, on the road to Damascus, 
The Lord knocked up off, him, off, off his horse and he looked up into the light and he says, Who are you, Lord, and what must I do? And the Lord revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. He revealed himself, a revelation of Jesus Christ. That word apocalypsos from the book of Revelations means a revelation or an unveiling of the person of Jesus Christ. And there was an unveiling of Jesus to the heart of Paul, formerly called Saul. And when he had that revelation of Jesus, his whole life was transformed. He forget religion, now it was all Jesus. Amen? And God extended grace to Paul, formerly called Saul, could have killed him in that moment in time, but God himself extended grace. And the scripture says that grace comes through God the Father and through Jesus Christ, speaking also of the deity of the person of Jesus. Paul receives the grace of God while attempting to have Christians put to death. His misplaced religious zeal, once revealed, caused him to be a proponent and advocate of grace. Why was he an advocate of grace? Because he received the grace of God. And because he was the greatest of sinners, he became one of the greatest of saints. And he was a recipient of grace. And he would have perished without grace. And he knew it. He knew the word of God well enough to know that in a split second, God could have killed him. And hell would have been his portion. And as much zeal that he had for the law... Even to condemning people to an early grave, he now demonstrated a tremendous zeal for the grace of God. Why does Paul talk about grace over and over and over and over and over and over? Because he was the greatest recipient of the grace of God. Just like John Newton. Just like John Newton. Demonstrating and extending undeserved favor to people who didn't deserve it. That's me. I didn't deserve the favor of God blaspheming person that I was. Didn't even understand how far from God that I was. Is there anybody else who can identify with what I'm speaking about? But when the light of God breaks through into your soul, what a glorious thing. He had received its glorious redeeming power. But who here needs grace? A lot of the Aussie guys will say, I'm a good bloke. I was never a slave trader, never debaucherous anyway. And I certainly haven't killed anyone. I thought, who knows that preacher T.D. Jakes? I think he's died now. Tremendous preacher. But I remember seeing something. He was on a, a, a day show in America um, about 15 years ago. I'll paraphrase everything that, I, that he said because I'm only doing it from memory. But the concept was this. And the, and the thing is, who needs grace? The average Aussie guy and girl, they think, oh, I, I'm, I'm a good bloke. I'm a good person. I'm a good woman. Not killed anyone. I, I live by most of the laws. Taxation department, maybe not, but anyway. But a passenger ship, let's picture this picture, paraphrasing the whole lot. But imagine a passenger ship going down 50 miles offshore. This was in America, so 50 miles is what they had. 50 miles offshore, a big passenger ship goes down into the ocean. An SOS, which means, of course, save our souls, goes out. Some immediately would have drowned upon entering the water had not the lifeboat called Grace not picked them up and brought them to shore. Isn't that amazing? The lifeboat called Grace picked those up who immediately fell into the water. They couldn't swim, couldn't swim, couldn't uh, tread water, did nothing. Some were able to tread water for some length of time and they too would have drowned had not the lifeboat called Grace picked them up and brought them to the shore. Likewise, some were able to swim some distance. They were Aussies on board, of course. 
They could swim some distance. They were right, mate. And uh, yet they too would have drowned had not the lifeboat called Grace picked them out of the water. Some were able to swim many miles. Fantastic. They were amazing. One swimmer swam 49 miles. And he too would have succumbed to the watery grave had not the lifeboat called Grace picked him up and brought him to the shore. What's the message in that? At the end of the day, every single person would have perished had not Grace intervened and made a way. You see, the cross is a great leveller. Grace is a great leveller. And I don't care if you're Mother Teresa or anybody else. We all need the grace of God. All of us. Every one of us. I need an extra portion of grace. Extra portion. The ship had sent out an SOS. And everybody's life was at stake. Just closing up now. And why, why do we all need grace? Isaiah puts it this way. But we all are like an unclean thing. All of us. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. In other words, the best of our good deeds with the best intent, God's standard still considers all those things as filthy rags. And so none of us would make it. We're all in the water and we all need that lifeboat called grace to get us to shore. If our righteousness is as filthy rags before God, then salvation cannot be earned on any form of merit, not, a, not one ounce of person, personal merit can you offer to God that would earn your salvation. Not one thing. <clears throat> Solely on the righteousness of Christ alone. Christ alone. You may look at yourself and you say, I'm one ship that cannot be salvaged. I was hoping a few more people would come tonight. I had some people in mind. And I was hoping they would hear these words. They may be thinking that I'm a ship too, I'm bigger than the Titanic and I'm too low to be salvaged. But Romans 5 and Paul once again says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And so where sin is the greatest, more grace is needed. But there's no shortage of the grace of God for the vilest of sinner who comes to God. The Bible says that Jesus says, I will no wise likewise turn out anybody who comes to me. So in the great reformation of 1517, started by Martin Luther in Germany, followed by all, went all through France and up into uh, Norway, Denmark and across to England, the whole of the West was covered with the gospel. They had this amazing thing called the reformation. It's when Christianity had got so traditional and formalized <clears throat> that there needed to be a massive work. And they came out with five pillars, you would say, that transformed everything back to biblical basics again. And it needs to happen in every generation, not just in 1500. It needs to happen again. It needs to happen today. A biblical reformation of the word of God. And, the, and they came out with these five Solar Fide, solar means alone. And so there was solar Fide, meaning faith alone. Solar Scriptura, Scripture alone. Solar Christus, through Christ alone. Solar Gratia, by grace alone. And solar De Gloria, glory to God alone. They were the five major pillars. The three minor ones there were saved by faith alone, through grace alone, and for the glory of God alone. 
So uh, write that scripture down for it is Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's a great scripture, isn't it? And, and when that hits home or, and, uh, and you give your life to Jesus, you're gloriously saved. <clears throat> I'll just finish up right now in, uh, and read two, two verses from, read, uh, from Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. And it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, Yet without sin, of course, this is speaking of Jesus, our high priest, the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father. Verse 16, let us, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Isn't it amazing? It's for us, for the believer. It's not called the great white throne of judgment, but it is called the throne of grace. That's where we obtain the grace of God. Is it our righteousness that gets us there? No. Is it anything else? We're sometimes no more righteous than the person who doesn't even believe. But we believe in the saving power of the cross. That the blood of Jesus was shed to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Atonement is an Old Testament word meaning that sin is covered. But in the New Testament that word atonement is not found. Because our sins are not covered but our removed. Justification is just as if I had never sinned. And, the, and, the, and your sin is washed away as if it was never committed. That is the grace of God, amen? That is the grace of God. And that is the assurance that we have in Him. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life, amen? There is an assurance that you have eternal life when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Normally at this point I'd ask Jules to come to the keys, but I'll just ask you to stand if you would, just right now. I'm going to pray it's always lovely to have a bit of music and accompaniment right now, but that's not the case tonight. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you, Father, for this word. I pray that the Spirit of God rest upon that word and empower that word to each and every person here, to each and every person listening in online. I pray, Lord, that they would receive the grace of God that is available to them right at this point in moment now, right now, not tomorrow, not next week, but now. And you think, oh, well, I've, got to, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. No, the grace of God is, is acknowledging that everything that needed to be done was done at the cross. And just accept that truth that Jesus' blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. I thank you, Father, as people receive you, they'll be born again of the Spirit of the living God. I pray that the blessing of heaven rest upon every single person here and those listening and online. I pray, Father, right now, Move upon their life, Lord God, on their finances, on their health, on their relationships, in every part, Lord, of their life. I pray right now, let the power of heaven intervene and may they just accept, Father, accept right now the grace that is extended to them from that throne of grace in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen and Amen. Amen. Just like to invite now.